this theme in the book. And he hits it here again. We already talked about it several weeks ago uh, in the first few verses of the book. Um, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And he hits it here again. And he hits it throughout the rest of the book. Um, So I want to try and help us understand what faith is and what a good conscience does for us to avoid shipwrecking our faith. Um, So this is a few ways that, that Paul talks about faith in the book of 1 Timothy. So jumping down, this is not every single time that he talks about faith, but these are a few. Jumping down to chapter 3, verse 9, they, deacons, must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Chapter 5, verse 12, uh, talking about what these folks deny, and they incur the condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Chapter 6, Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, there are other places that faith is talked of in this book. And he uses it two ways, basically. He uses it to mean the things you believe, so the actual content of the gospel, of the scriptures. Who God is, what he did, why it matters, all that is called the faith, the words of faith. And then he also uses it to mean the act of believing those things. Okay, so we need two sides of what he means by faith. The stuff we believe and then actually believing it. And think of it like this. So, say you're thrown overboard on a ship uh, through an accident or through a storm or something. In order to be saved, something has to be given to you to save you. Now, if someone throws overboard a rock, you can grab a hold of the rock in hope of saving yourself, but you will, in fact, drown. Because a rock cannot save in an ocean of water. Rocks sink. So you need something true, something that will actually do the job. You need a a life raft, a piece of wood, a... a, um, 
It's a, huh? Pair of pants. Pair of pants. Blow them up, tie the thing off, right? There's the, there's the veteran back there. Uh, what? Life preserver. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Um, you need something that will actually do the job, right? Something that will actually save you. You can have all the good hope in the world and intention of saving someone, but if you throw them something that doesn't actually do anything to save them, they're still going to die. And so the content of the gospel has to be present because it is the only thing in the entirety of the world that can actually save. It has to be the pure gospel, the words of God. The scriptures have to be taught believed, and preached. That has to be there. If that's not there, no amount of hoping in the world can save you. This is why false religions never, ever lead to the true God. You can be sincerely devoted to a different God with all the sincerity of the world, and it cannot, will not save you. That's why. Because it's like throwing a drowning man a rock. It doesn't matter how much he wants the rock to save him. It doesn't matter how tightly he holds. It's going to sink. That's all the religions of the world. That's everything that's not true faith. It's the wrong life preserver. It does not, cannot, will not save. And so we have to get this part right. We cannot be saved without the right life preserver, without something that actually floats, and more than that, that will pull us out of the sea so that we don't drown. Okay? The second part, though, is just as important. You have to hold on to the things, right? If someone throws a life raft down or a life jacket or is rowing by with a boat and says, grab a hold of the oar, and you don't do it, you will also drown. It's indisputable, right? If you you don't do it, you will drown. Or is it disputable? Are there ways to be saved when you're drowning that don't involve you? Yeah. I almost drowned once. I was in Speculator, New York, working night security at a big old Christian camp there called Camp of the Woods. Great camp. And in the middle of this lake that it's on, Lake Speculator, they have an island that's an all-girls like middle school camp. And every Friday or Saturday, I can't remember which, a bunch of guys from the mainland would go out, dress nicely, you know, jacket, tie, and we would serve the middle school girls their final supper. Very nice, very sweet, and we'd take a big pontoon over. There'd be about ten ten guys. Well, on the way back from that island, it's, you know, twilight, midsummer, you know, like 9 o'clock. We're coming back, and something fell off the pontoon. I actually don't remember what it was. But, you know, I was 19 and an idiot. And uh, there was another guy there who's about 22. His name was Mark Axtell. And uh, he was an Army Ranger. 
so slightly more fit and uh, up to the task than I was, if you can imagine, uh, a ranger being a little more able to swim and rescue something and get back to a boat. But I was like, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a decent swimmer. So I, you know, rip off the tie and the overshirt and throw off the shoes, and we both jump in. Well, he swam out and got whatever it was, swam back, got on, and we were in the current of the lake, except for the current was opposite of what I needed to go. So it was pulling me this way, and the boat was going this way. And so then the boat had to turn, make a wide swoop around, and I was not doing well. Um, I'm an okay swimmer, but you're talking several minutes and with dress clothes on, pants and a shirt, socks, makes a big difference. And uh, if you've ever known anything about drowning, it doesn't look like the movies show it, right? You're not like flailing and screaming because all of your energy is just trying to get above the water. So a lot of times drowning is a very quiet thing. You just slip under the water. Okay, so I was there, right? Life flashing before my eyes, nose just like barely above. I'm like swimming as hard as I can, can't like hardly get up to get a breath to do anything. And what happens? Guess who saved me? The ranger, Mark Axtell, put his arm underneath me, pulled me up, put a life uh, ring underneath me, pulled me onto the boat. That's a picture of the Christian faith. Unable to call for help. Unable to do it yourself. But you have to be able to hold on to that ring. You've got to do it. Otherwise you will die. And so what does Jesus do? He saves the drowning man. Who cannot save himself. Gives us the ring to hold. And keeps us on it the whole way back to the boat. And this is the hope that we have in the gospel. This is the utter unbelievability of the gospel. Because we want to pretend like we would be able to hold the ring. If, if Mark would just let go of me, I would be fine. I can do it now. You know, I got the saving thing. But we need someone else to do this work for us. And Jesus did the work. He does the work. And so what's going on here? What happens when you shipwreck your faith? Well, there are two sides to this. You are absolutely unable to save yourself. No matter how much you want to save yourself, you can't do it. You will drown. You will die. Jesus has to do the work. He has to jump in the water. He has to come over to you. He has to put his arms around you. He has to put the life preserver under you. And then he has to drag you to the boat. So how then can we, Paul say, fight the good fight? Wage the good warfare? It's complicated, I think. It's not easy to answer. We tend to think of faith as just like this passing word that we just use. You know, I have faith. I believe Faith is, faith is an intangible thing, right? You can't, you can't touch it, right? Not something you can hold on to in the sense of like holding on to a, a string at the end of a balloon. So 
Here's what happens, though, if you don't fight. These are the words that Paul uses just in this book. You'll be made a shipwreck. You will depart. You will deny. You will wander. You will swerve. You will abandon. You will be worse than an unbeliever. That's a lot of really intense language surrounding faith. It's not meant to be taken lightly. It's not meant to be taken for granted. Your faith is absolutely necessary. What is your faith? What is it? Right? We have the definition from Hebrews that's helpful. I can get there. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Well known. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, um, that's the wrong one. It's Hebrews chapter 11. Sorry. Now, faith, this is what faith is, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what is faith? Faith is not grabbing hold of the life preserver. Faith is not dragging yourself to the boat. Faith is believing that Christ will do it. Okay? This is our act of faith. The true thing that will actually save us is the life and death of Jesus. It's the only true life preserver. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. What is our faith? To believe that he is the Savior. He can do it. It's not to believe that we can do it. It's not to actually hold on to the life preserver. It's to say to ourselves over and over again, God is faithful. He is true. He is saving me, even now. Um, as we were ending Sunday school, um, Daryl prayed for the unction of the Holy Spirit, and it reminded me of a, a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in England in the mid-1900s, so like 1930 to 1975 or something like that. And he had a lot of good things to say. Um, and now I've just forgotten the one I was trying to remember. <laughs> uh, I had it. Thanks, Daryl. It's very good. It was helpful that you said that, and now it's unhelpful that I'm talking about it. Faith, faith, faith. I can't remember the quote now. Um, here is our job as Christians. It's to, it's to believe in the one who saves. It's to actually trust that the thing underneath us, lifting us up out of the water, is actually doing the work. Um, when we are told in 1 Timothy to fight, to be trained, to continue, to hold, to have sincere faith, this is what we must do. It's not secondary. And what happens? 
is if you start doubting. You begin to swerve. You begin to waver. And a lot of times, the difficulty in helping people is determining what's happening. Right? Is it, is it a lack of faith that Jesus can save? Or is it an abandonment of the faith? Because those are two different things. Right? We all have absences, lacks of faith. It happens to everyone, right? The most, the, the f- famous story, right, is Peter getting out of the boat to walk on the water, trains his eyes on Jesus, walks, takes his eyes off Jesus, sinks. There's lots of things we can learn from that. One of the things that nearly everybody gets right is we can't take our eyes off of Jesus or we will die, right? But then what happens? Jesus swoops down and saves Peter anyway. We all have moments where we take our eyes off of Christ. And so what's happening with Hymenaeus? What's happening with Alexander? What's happening with these men who are disturbing the peace of the Ephesians? Who are these men who must be rebuked and told to stop? Well, they're not just people having doubts. A lot of times what happens with this sort of person is they begin to ask innocent questions. Right, And if you remember an old, old story, very old, the oldest story, there was a man who, well, there was a serpent who asked a question. Did God really say? What's that? What, what was the purpose of Satan's question? Was it to assure Adam and Eve of the truthfulness of God, because you can ask that sort of question innocently. I I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's what Scripture says. Do you are you sure that's what it says? That's an innocent question. It can be very normal in discussions to have that kind of question. And so you look and you decide whether or not Scripture says that thing. But then there's another type of asking that question that is more satanic. And it's yeah, but did God really say that? Does he really mean that? I know it's, it says that, but what does it mean? What's, be, what's behind that kind of thing? Do you think God actually means for you to believe and think that and teach that? And those sorts of questions are the beginnings of shipwreck. Those sorts of questions are the things that undermine faith and that cause a cloudy conscience. And we get those from all sorts of places, and they differ generation to generation, right? So we're going to get to some of these here in a couple of weeks. I don't know exactly when yet. Um, This is just the next chapter of 1 Timothy. This is... One of the most controversial passages in the last 70 years in the church, not just in the United States, but across the world. So Paul says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, 
with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Almost every person here, including myself, sometimes when I read that, I want to go, did God really say it? Did he really mean what I think he meant? And here's basically the litmus test of whether or not God meant what he said. God always means what he says. He doesn't ever misspeak. He doesn't stumble over his words like we do. He doesn't forget a quote of Martin Lloyd-Jones in a sermon. He never accidentally says something he doesn't mean. He is a good father. Good in all his ways. And so what we have to be careful of is taking legitimate questions that we might have, right? So there are lots of legitimate questions you can have about the passage I just read. Lots of them. And some of them can even be emotional questions. I don't, I don't really like that. I feel like that's not fair. Those are legitimate questions to ask, feelings to have. God doesn't say everything I wrote is going to be amendable to you. But we begin to walk down a very different road when we begin to say, but did God really mean that? I know he said it, but did he mean it? And you see this all the time with the way kids' minds work, and adults too. A rule will be set. No cookies. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You're going to ruin your dinner. Right? And what you mean by no cookies, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Afternoon, no dinner is you're not allowed to have anything right now. It's too close to dinner. That's what you meant. But what you said was no cookies, because that's what they asked. And so what does the mischievous child do? The disobedient child. He finds some suitable alternative. As close to cookies as he can, right? A star crunch, you know, ice cream, something. And if you can't find one thing that's really good, you know, animal crackers or just plain crackers or anything. He'll take anything if he can't find something else. And we look at that kid, and it's precocious, and sometimes it can be cute. But the reality is what he's showing is a despising of his father's word. Because a five- or a six-year-old knows that when you say no cookies, what you really mean is... No snacks. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We're going to eat in two hours. You'll be fine. Right? But he takes it as meaning, okay, no cookies. Exactly that specific thing. Or, or he just doesn't ask the question the next day. And that's really where we get the adult version of this. We know that that is a policy, X, Y, or Z. <clears throat> but... 
we've not really seen it enforced. And so why not? What's the worst that could happen? Somebody says it's a policy and tells us not to do it, and that's fine. That's fine. I can get away with it. I can handle that. I can handle that heat. These sorts of things we take very lightly. But think of what that does to your conscience, right? So faith and conscience are linked over and over in 1 Timothy. What does it do to your conscience to do those sorts of things? Is it helpful to your conscience? Is it helpful to your child's conscience when they do those sorts of things? No, obviously it's not. It's not good to sneak and do these things. Because one, they will feel it in their conscience if they have one, and they usually do. And two, they will have to do something to make their conscience quiet. We have to do the same sorts of things. When we run into things we dislike about God's good word, we have to mess with our conscience. And even though something might seem very clear, we'll kind of go, well, you know, this is, this is mostly the last 70 years of the debate over that passage I read. Well, that particular passage, out of everything else that Paul wrote here in 1 Timothy, was particular to the Ephesian church. Um, because they were having like really rebellious women, and they were just really doing awful things, and we know that because... Somehow they know that. And so therefore it doesn't have any relevance anymore to anything we do. So that particular three verses, you really just don't even need. You don't need to think about those three verses. What's happening there? The deadening of a conscience. The swerving that starts to happen. Now, hear me very carefully. We can have all kinds of questions about Scripture. And not be in danger. Okay? You can have all kinds of questions and not be in danger. If a child comes and he says, you know, can I have a cookie? And we say, no, it's 3 o'clock. Too close to dinner, no cookies. He says, well, what about this? I'm like, no, you can't have that either. What about this? And you go, okay, okay, I get you. You're hungry. We're not going to have snacks right now. Stop asking that question. Those were innocent questions of a child. He's not in trouble for asking those questions. He's trying to get at what you mean by what you said, right? They're innocent questions. We can have all kinds of questions about Scripture, and it's childlike. It's good. It's the thing that Jesus commends, right? Be like a child when you come to me. Have questions. Wonder about things. Try to understand them. Scripture is at one time completely simple and extraordinarily complex, right? Peter says about Paul, he writes difficult things that are hard to understand, that men who are crooked make crooked, right? That's a paraphrase. Um, but basically, there are things in Scripture that are difficult that you have to ask questions about. And generation by generation, those difficult passages change and ebb and flow, Right now, in our generation, and our generation being me all the way up to most of you, 
This passage is one of those passages where we go, I don't know what to make of this. I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. It's not the world I grew up in. And there are lots of things like that in Scripture. There are lots of things where it's okay to ask questions. It's not okay to ask them with intent. Does that make sense? Satan had intent when he asked that question in the garden. Did God really say? We can ask the same sort of question. Yeah, but does it really mean that? And be perfectly innocent. But when you begin to undermine the faith of God's people with your questions, you begin to align yourselves more and more with Hymenaeus and Alexander. And that's what happens. right? By the end, these men have not just been asking questions, but they've begun to teach things that are untrue. Forbidding marriage. right? That's later on in 1 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, we learn that uh, Hymenaeus has denied, has said that the resurrection, i.e. Jesus, or i.e. the whole resurrection of all Christians, has already happened. They began just going crazy, and you see this all through the history of the church. Men who began with an intent question, and by the end of it, they're no longer even talking about the same gospel. I see this now, right? So in college, I had a professor named James McGrath. James McGrath, I think he's now the head of the religion department at Butler University. Um, I had another one there named Paul Valliere. Both of them super liberal. I mean, like, boggle your mind liberal. Valliere may have been a Christian, okay? Professor Valliere. James McGrath is not a Christian, How do I know he's not a Christian, even though he's the head of the religion department and claims to be a Christian? Because he's malicious after people's faith. The sorts of questions he asks in class make anyone who has any inkling of faith die. Because he says things like, do you even know if Paul wrote those letters? Let me show you why Paul didn't write those letters. You think Matthew wrote the book of Matthew? That's so ridiculous. Let me show you why that's not true. Isaiah was written by two different authors, hundreds of years apart, and they weren't prophecies about Cyrus. That's just true. That's fact. James McGrath sat on a council that literally, it's called the Jesus Seminar, which is the most distasteful, blasphemous name they could have ever picked. And the job of the Jesus Seminar was to go through the four Gospels, and every time... Jesus speaks to take a bean, red, pink, and black, and mark whether they think that's an authentic, maybe authentic, or not authentic saying of Jesus. So they got to go through the four Gospels and decide if that was really Jesus talking to every single phrase he said. And guess what their conclusion was? Most of it wasn't Jesus. He wouldn't have said that. He wouldn't have said that. He wouldn't have said that. He might have said that. He definitely wouldn't have said that. 700 men did this. James McGrath was one of them. This guy denies the faith. He denies Jesus himself and calls himself a Christian. He is of Hymenaeus and Alexander. 
right? These men exist. They're not myths. They're not just like 2,000 years ago, there were a couple of guys. They exist now, and they destroy people's faith. Another example of this, when we were up north living in Urbana, where I was pastoring, I had a small Bible study in Manchester University. It's a very, very liberal brethren university. They have a two-week-long gay pride fest where they hang the gay pride flag on the chapel. Okay? Super liberal. So I'm there. I'm having a Bible study. There's about six kids coming. A young girl named Cherisella was there. She was a freshman. She begins asking some strange questions during our Bible study. I'm like, why would you even ask that question? That's a very strange question to ask. So I began to talk to her, and there was a professor there named Justin who was just like James McGrath. And he picked apart that girl's faith the whole year, just destroyed it. This stuff is real. It happens all the time. It is very important for us as we hopefully begin to grow and have young people here that we prepare them for men like Hymenaeus and Alexander. We do not want them to hold loosely to the faith. And so we need to prepare them by showing them what it means to persevere in the faith, to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight of faith. What does it look like to live 80, 90 years as a believer? What does it look like at the end? So that they can aim for it, right? So that when Hymenaeus and Alexander come at them with these unbelievable questions and these more unbelievable doctrines, that they can go, that's not true. That's not even close. Have you even read the Bible? We want... Kids like this. And one of the ways we do this is by not covering up the fact that men like Hymenaeus and Alexander exist. They exist. It's not figments. And it's not political, right? This is not a Democrat-Republican issue. This is not a conservative-liberal issue. This is a Christian, non-Christian issue. This is a either you persevere in the faith or you shipwreck the faith kind of an issue. And so I want to encourage us, one, to continue to believe, to have faith that Jesus actually does do what he says he came to do, which is to save sinners. He does. He saves us. Us. Have you seen us? Me, you, that's the kind of person Jesus saves, which means anybody. That's the true gospel. That's what saves. So what do we believe? We believe that. And when things happen, we believe that. When words are said, we believe that. And then, then... Be willing to wage warfare together. I talked about it last week, but this is so important for us. It's not every man for himself in the Christian world. It's not every woman for herself in the Christian world. It is us 
together for each other, for the sake of the gospel, together. Everyone important, everyone apart. The ones that we think are the least important are the ones to be most honored among us. That's, that's scripture. That's 1 Corinthians. The ones that you think don't have any honor are the ones to be the most honored among us. You think you're not honorable? You have honor. Why? Because you are absolutely intrinsically necessary to the gospel here in Jasper, in this church. Without you, individually, we all suffer. And you know this, don't you? Because people have left over the last 20 years and you have felt it deep, personally. Because they were important. When the big toe leaves, the whole body feels it. When the three little ones leave, the whole body feels it. Every one of us, absolutely vital for everyone else to get to the end. To not shipwreck, to not swerve, to not deny, to not wander, to not swerve, to not abandon. Instead, to fight, to be trained, to have, to continue, to hold, to have sincere faith. All of us together. And the job of Timothy, the job of the pastor of the Ephesian church, Timothy, was to ensure that that actually happened. The job of me, if you continue down the road to call me as your pastor in a few weeks, that's my job. You are my job. And when we are able to ordain elders here, it will be their jobs to get us there, to make sure none fall off the boat, and if they do fall off the boat, to rescue them. That's what we're doing. And it is a good, good fight. Why is it a good fight? Because Christ has the victory. He wins. He won. It's settled. There's no debating this. There is no questioning that. Okay? So as we go forward, we're going to hit some difficult stuff. We're going to hit some texts that you are likely to not like, feel uncomfortable with. Don't run away from that. Don't despise that in your heart and, and sear your conscience with that. Be willing. Be willing to talk, to fight together with it. We don't want anyone left behind. We don't want anyone in the waters churning. Okay? We want to be together as a body, unified in Christ, our head. And we can be. Because not only does Christ save us, but he keeps us together and he keeps us to the end. To him be all glory, honor, and praise. Let's stand. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing together. And it's...
Just so you know, it's number 401. I don't know what number it is in the bulletin, but it's 401 in your hymnals. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your goodness. Father, we pray that you would keep us in the faith.